Father, we come to you this morning with heavy hearts. What's going on in our world? We pray not only for our brothers and sisters in Christ, but for all of your creation. We pray for what's going on in our world, in our country. God, that you would break through, that love would change people, that your love would change folks in the midst of this conversation, in the midst of decisions. And that you would help us by praying that we would be people of prayer to trust you to do what you would desire. So help us mourn with those who mourn, weep with those who weep, pray for our enemies, those who persecute us. God, we pray that we would be a church that would bow our knee to that in a posture of love, humility, and devotion to you. Father, we also pray for this morning as we look at the darkest moment in all of human history, as we see in John 19, today the death of your son. Father, I pray that as we examine this text and we look at what you might want to say to us this morning, that you would give us the eyes to see it, the ears to hear it, the hearts to be transformed, that we would see what may be a familiar passage in a beautiful and fresh and new way, and that it would draw us to your son, Jesus. I pray that you would do it. We ask in your name. Amen. Well, there is an author and a psychologist named Dan Allender who's up in Seattle. Some of you may know his work. He came to Jesus later in life. He tells a story about the first time he came into a church on a Sunday, which was his early 20s. And he grew up in an abusive home in a very dark reality. And a friend, a close friend, invited him to church, and he decided to come with them to church. And if you've never grown up in church, and you walk in an environment like this on a Sunday, it's somewhat unusual. Like, if we're used to it because we've been around church or we come to the church, we, we go, oh, this is just normal. But if you've never been in something, you walk in, and, and the way he describes the first time that he came to church is he's coming in, and he sits down, and he's kind of looking around and just kind of examining everything. And then he goes, everybody stands up and starts singing all at the same time. He goes, I felt like I was at a Broadway play. He goes, wait a minute. I felt like I was in a Broadway play, and I was given the lines that I had to sing right in the moment that I didn't know. And it is pretty unusual what we do when we come into this space on a Sunday morning, specifically with singing. And when you think about it, you go, where else does that happen in your life? Where else is that culturally acceptable? Maybe at a sporting event, kind of at the end of the game, sometimes they'll sing a song that's common. Um, the only other place that I can think of that makes sense culturally is during Christmas. You get together with people, some you know, some you don't know, and somebody can start a song, and then all of a sudden everybody is singing in unison. It's very strange. <laughs> and there's plenty of reasons that we feel called to sing on a Sunday. There's a whole list of them. But it feels like Christmas is the only other thing that, it feels like somewhat normal. If you did that in any other environment, if you walked into your work environment and started singing and looking around expecting everybody else to join you, that would be weird. Well, we're a couple months out of Christmas, but there is one Christmas movie, the movie Elf. And if you remember, if you're familiar with the movie Elf, at the very end of the movie, it's kind of the climax of the film. Santa's in Central Park. His sleigh doesn't work, and Buddy's trying to fix it. And then there's this crowd in Central Park on the outskirts. And Zoe Deschanel's character stands up on a sleigh, and she sings a song. 
Do you remember the song she sings? Does anybody remember it? Not fully confident. You don't want to say it out loud because you're like, well, maybe that's not it. Uh, she sings Santa Claus is coming to town, right? You remember the lyrics of that song? He sees you when you're sleeping. Number one, that's creepy. <laughs> For an old man with a beard to look at a little kid sleeping. That... He knows when you're awake. He knows when you've been or so be for he knows when you've been bad or good, so be good for goodness sake. Now, that song originally came out in 1934. So the majority of us have sung it if we've celebrated Christmas at all in the last several years. You probably grew up singing it at least once a year. But what is the subtle message that is implied with the idea of Santa Claus and specifically with that song? If you look at all the Christmas movies, it's this idea that you need to believe in Santa. There's a belief in Santa that has to happen. That's part of the Christmas story, right? But that belief is kind of superseded by this idea of, are you good or are you bad? Right? Is your behavior good? Because if it's good, what happens? You get put on the nice list. And if you're bad, you get put on what? The naughty list. And you don't want to be on the naughty list because if you're on the naughty list, then what? You don't get gifts from Santa. And that's what you're after. So it's this kind of this idea that really your position, your standing and how Santa views you is based on your practice, your good behavior. And somehow that seeped into the unconscious message of the gospel in our Christian world. Just like Santa, there's, there's a belief in God and specifically a belief in Jesus. That's important. You need Jesus for your forgiveness of sins. But really, when it gets down to it, it's really about my behavior. It's really about if I'm doing good or if I'm doing bad and kind of the scales tip one way or another. That are, we bought into the lie that our position, our standing with God, how he views us is based on our practice. And what we're going to find in the story in John 19 and his account this morning is that the gospel unwinds that narrative for us, even if we're Christians. Because on paper, you could go, well, I, I know that's not true on paper, but you might not feel that way in your heart. So if you look at John chapter 19, if you have a Bible, open it up. We're going to start in verse 28. What we're going to discover in the passage this morning is we're going to see full guilt on display. We're going to see full innocence on display, and then we're going to see full love on display. Full guilt, full innocence, and full love. Bless you. As you're opening up, if it's not already open, um, we, need to, we need to remind ourselves a couple things of John's writing. This is important for us. It's going to give us context or backdrop for understanding these verses that we're going to cover. The first thing we need to be reminded of as John writes this gospel is that he's writing it with the assumption that the audience knows the other three accounts of Jesus' death. Right, the Gospel of John is not one of the synoptics, the first three, which are all similar. John tells a different version of his story. It's written much later. It's written in actually about 90 AD. So you have to remember, Romans came out already. There's all these books that are already out, these letters that are already out. And so John is telling different details because he's assuming the audience already knows the other details of the story of Jesus dying. 
It'd be like you going to see a Marvel movie and say you go to see Avengers Endgame. And that's, I don't know what number that is in the franchise, but if you go into that movie, Iron Man doesn't get introduced when he shows up on the screen. There's an assumption from the writers, oh, you know the character of Captain America, you know the character of Iron Man to some level. You've either seen the movies or you're familiar with them. This is what John is doing in his gospel. We have to be reminded of that because he's going to give us details of the death of Jesus we don't get in any of the other three. That's important. The second thing that's important for us to be reminded of is John uses loaded language in his gospel. Throughout the entire gospel, even specifically in the passage we're going to look at today, the language is massively loaded. And when I say loaded language, here's what I mean as an example. Say we get in a time machine and we go back 10 years from now. It's 2012. We're having a conversation, interacting, talking about whatever, and I say the phrase at some point in our conversation, we should make America great again. (laughs) Now, 10 years ago, you're going to go, what do you mean? Like, tell me more about that. I mean, that was actually Reagan's slogan in the 80s, so if you're familiar with history, you might go, okay, I'm somewhat familiar with that. But because of our cultural context now, today, if I say that phrase today, it carries different meanings. Whether you like it or dislike it, that's not the point. The point is, it's loaded language, right? It is loaded with implications if I say that phrase. Now, the the deal with loaded language is the further you get away from the time period and the context of that language, the less it usually has its meaning. So if that phrase gets said 100 years from now, it's not going to feel the same way you felt in your body when I said it right now because of all the things that have happened in the last decade. So this is what's careful for us to to be aware of as John is using this loaded language that his original audience would go, I can't believe he said that. And he starts dropping these hints in the story, connecting the dots between what's going on in the Old Testament and what Jesus is actually doing. And it is going to blow us away this morning. As we look at it, we go, what's John trying to do to us this morning? What is he trying to communicate for us? So remember those two things. He has uh, his original audience. He's assuming they know the other three. And he's also using this loaded language that's going to help make sense as we run down these lanes this morning. So again, John chapter 19, starting in verse 28 We're going to walk through the text together, and really, there's going to be three phrases that we're really going to sit on in the verses that Josh read this morning for us. Number one, it's going to be, I thirst, it is finished, and this idea of blood and water that John uses. All of those statements are massively loaded in the text, and we're going to do our best to unpack why and what it means for us today. So verse 28, John 19, says this, after this, if you're, if you're just joining us, Jesus is on the cross, the scene before. He's being crucified. It says, After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scriptures, I thirst. Why does Jesus say that phrase, I thirst? And why does John record it for us? It's not recorded anywhere else in the other gospels. Now, on the surface, you might read that and go, That would make sense that he would be thirsty. I mean, again, put yourself in this situation. Jesus has been slapped. He's been spit on. He's been beaten. He's been whipped. He's carried this cross. He's got this crown of thorns shoved into his skull. He is desperately asking for some type of relief. That would make sense. Like he wants a drink because he wants some type of relief from his pain in the moment. 
But if we're careful and we look at our Bible and we look at the story of Jesus going to the cross, out of all of those things I just mentioned, he never asked for physical relief. It actually says he keeps his mouth closed like a sheep led to the slaughter. And even in Mark chapter 15 and Matthew chapter 27, as he's going to the cross to carry his cross, he's offered this wine with myrrh mixed in it, and it says. And it says in those texts, he doesn't take it. The wine mixed with myrrh was kind of this sedative. They're basically saying, Jesus, take this. It's going to numb your pain a little bit. And Jesus goes, no. So it doesn't seem like Jesus is asking for a drink, that he's thirsty because he wants some type of relief physically. I don't think that is what is happening here. So why does he say it? Why does John record it? Well, the verse, if you just look down at it again, gives us a clue in verse 28. Um, knowing that all this was now finished, he said, to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. Well, what does that phrase, to fulfill the scripture, mean? If that's why he's saying it and it's being recorded, what does that actually mean. The word fulfill in the original language actually means to bring to completion or accomplish. So he's saying this to bring to a, a completion or accomplish the scriptures. Now, if you're not familiar with the story of the Bible, let me just give you like a one-minute version of it. And we use this language all the time within redemption and within Christianity. You probably heard this. There's four acts of the story of the scriptures, creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. This idea that God created everything and he created it good and beautiful and perfect. And we see that in the Bible in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 in the scriptures. But even in the midst of that creation, as he creates Adam and Eve, he gives them the opportunity to choose. And we see in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve decide not to choose God. They get tricked into believing God's holding out on them, that they want something different. They want their own autonomy, and they disobey God's direct command, and there's results of it. There's sin. So now there's brokenness in the story. There's shame in this story. And even in the midst of that, God says, I'm still going to find a way for you to be connected to me. Even in Genesis 3, we see the first sacrifice, even if you read between the lines. Remember, Adam and Eve, they're scared, they're ashamed of God. God comes to them and they're hiding from God. And remember, they put fig leaves over themselves because they realize they're naked for the first time. And what does God do? He covers them. How does he cover them? It says with animal skins. Well, where does he get those animal skins? the first blood sacrifice we see in the story of the Bible. And it will continue on as God creates this people, the nation of Israel. And he says, listen, to get right with me, there needs to be a consequence because of your sin. That's going to be a lamb. It's going to be a goat. It's going to be a sacrifice that is pure. You're going to bring in that lamb, that perfect lamb. It doesn't have any broken bones, the Old Testament tells us, when you're selecting that lamb. And then you're to make a sacrifice, and that blood creates like this clean space for you to be right with God again for a moment. He sets up this system until the actual lamb comes in the person of Jesus. That's where we get redemption. And then one day, he's going to come back and make it all right again. So John is saying that he said, I thirst to fulfill the scriptures. But he doesn't say, I thirst, because he's trying to alleviate his pain. He says, I thirst because he's going to drink the cup the Father has to give him. What is that cup? 
Well, if we look back, if you remember in chapter 18, there's this scene where Jesus gets arrested and Peter, in his best human effort, tries to defend Jesus. You remember, he pulls out his sword and he cuts off the guy's ear and Jesus puts the ear back and he says this in John chapter 18, verse 11 to Peter. He says, put away your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? What cup is Jesus referring to? Well, again, this is loaded language that the Bible's readers would know in the Old Testament. He's talking about this cup of wrath. And the cup is a metaphor for death that symbolizes God's wrath. This is Psalm 75, Isaiah 51, Jeremiah 25, Jeremiah 28, Jeremiah 29. And you go, well, isn't this God a God of love? Like, why is his wrath involved here? And why is Jesus asking to drink the cup of wrath from the fathers? This doesn't seem to make sense to me. I love the way Gavin Ortland says it when he says this. He says, in the Bible, God's wrath is not the problem, but the solution. Not the offensive doctrine needing defense, but the long-awaited vindication of justice after the tension of the prophets. How long, O Lord? Throughout the story, the prophets are going, Lord, how long? You have been so patient. You've been so forgiving. How long are you going to continue to let this injustice happen? We're seeing death. We're seeing rape. We're seeing terrible, terrible things happen. And God, you're not doing anything. How long will you let it happen? God's wrath is the answer to that how long. His justice is the answer to that how long. Nahum, one of the prophets in chapter 1, says it this way. says, the Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. If God is a just God and a holy God and somebody does something wrong, there's a price that needs to be paid for that. If he's a just God, he will execute justice. Again, Ortland says it this way, this idea of understanding how can a loving God also have wrath. He says, apart from any theological or religious consideration, the idea of love and wrath are at odds is hard to square with basic human psychology. We all know loving people who get angry precisely because they are good and loving. What good parent is not angry, for example, at the mistreatment of his children? Do any of us not feel anger when we see real evil in the world? Runaway greed, for instance, or blatant hypocrisy? Does this anger reveal the lack of charity in us? No, it's just the opposite. We feel anger at injustice and wrong because we care about people. Anger is how goodness responds to people, just as squinting is how eyes respond to bright lights, or recoiling is how hands respond to hot surfaces. If there's no payment, there is not, then God is not a just God. But because of the brokenness in the world, what we see in Genesis 3, there has to be payment involved. There has to be payment for sin. There has to be payment for death. There has to be payment for destruction. And it lands squarely on the shoulders of Jesus as he takes the cup of wrath. That's why I think he says, I thirst. 
Full guilt deserves full punishment, and Jesus takes full punishment on the cross. John continues in this loaded language in verse 29. If you look down back at your Bible in chapter 19 of John, he says this. He says, a jar of sour wine stood there. So I put a sponge on it. So they put a sponge on it for the sour wine on a hyssop branch held in its mouth. Now, all the other accounts, the three accounts, uh, they, they talk about this detail, but they just say that there was a reed that gets put on a sponge and then it gets brought up to Jesus's mouth. John goes a little bit farther in the detail and he says it was a hyssop which is a type of plant. Why does John use that language again? It's loaded for us to see. Where do we see the first time hyssop shows up in the story of the Bible? It actually shows up first in Exodus chapter 12. If you're familiar with that story, the nation of Israel, they are stuck in Egypt. They're in bondage. They're in slavery. They cry out to God, and God hears their cries, and he comes to them to rescue them. He sends Moses he says, Moses, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to put these plagues on. And God, in his generosity, starts low and just keeps amping it up because Pharaoh is not letting the people go. The last one, he says, listen, this is going to be a bad one, this last one. You need to let Pharaoh know. Pharaoh continues to harden his heart. And this last plague is killing the firstborn. So here's what Moses tells to instruct the people of Israel to do so that their firstborn will not die. Exodus chapter 12, verse 20 and tw- 21 and 22 says this, Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans. Then kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch it to the lintel of the doorpost and the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go to the door of his house until morning. This hyssop plant was the plant used to paint the doorway of the blood of the lamb. And John is making direct connection to what's going on here in our story. Where else do we see hyssop? You might be more familiar with this one if you've read it, Psalm 51. David, King David, who's God's king, anointed king, sins terribly with Bathsheba. It's a whole story. It's all kinds of mess. We're going to cover it later in the summer. But what does he say as he journals his confession in Psalm 51? Look at the words, Psalm 51, starting verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash away my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgression, and my sin is always before me. Against you, only you, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justify when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time of my mother conceived me. Yet you desire faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. What I think John is doing here is he's connecting the true guilt of sin and punishment with this idea of blood, and then hyssop being something that cleanses you. And I think that's exactly what Jesus is doing on the cross. Let's look down, continue at our story. Verse 30 says, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Again, this is the only time we see this language attached to Jesus in the Gospels, and specifically his death. It is finished. And this is a phrase that's actually one word in the original language in the Greek. It's teleo. That's the way you say it in the Greek, teleo. And this is a phrase that servants 
would use after they finish a job, they would say it's taleho. When priests examine an animal and say it's good, they would say it's taleho. When an artist would finish a piece, he would say it's taleho. When merchants would get fully paid for their services, they would say it's taleho. What taleho means is it's paid in full. It's paid in full. So Jesus' last words on the cross, according to John, are it's paid in full. What is paid in full? Your sin, your guilt, the thing God is coming in the flesh in Jesus to rectify is that it is paid in full. I'm in my uh, fourth year of a master's program. It's a, it's a two-year degree in four years for slower folks like me. It's, uh, no, it's actually a, a slow-drip discipleship. It's intentionally meant to be that way where it's a cohort style and you're in a room with about 13 different people over those four years from all different churches and ministries, and it's unbelievable. It's really great. It's called uh, MTC, Missional Training Center, out of Covenant Seminary, and we do it here locally, and I've loved it, and it's been super formational for me. But at the beginning of my four years, I had somebody that came along and said, hey, I would like to scholarship you and pay your whole tuition for the four years, which was awesome, unbelievable, paid the check right even before I did my first class. So every year, the administrator sends an email out from Covenant Seminary being like, hey, you guys, remember, you need to pay your tuition this year. And the email comes to me every year. And every year, I'm like, I paid my tuition. It's done. It's paid in full. I don't owe you anything. And I'm kind of annoyed when I get the email. Like, you should know this by now. Why do I have to respond to you? But she's just trying to do her job. She forgets. And every year she goes, oh, yeah, I forgot about that. Some of us in our Christian life, we're not holding tight to the words of Jesus at being finished and paid in full regarding our sin. And the enemy will send you these emails like, oh, by the way, you're not really righteous. You just did that? Do you know you just did that? I don't go back to the email and go, oh, you're right. I need to pay some more. No, it's done. It's paid in full. And for some of us in our Christian life, we need to realize that what Jesus has done on the cross with our sin, if you've accepted him, it's paid in full. There's no more shame. There's no more guilt. It's done. It's done. But if you're like me, you don't feel that way because <laughs> you keep screwing up. You keep blowing it, you keep sinning, and you feel like, oh, but you can't add anything to the cross. You are fully innocent if you've accepted Jesus in that gift of salvation. You were fully guilty because of your sin. Now you are fully innocent. Doesn't mean you don't do wrong things. You will still do wrong things until the day you are dead. But you, as God sees you through the lens of Jesus, you are innocent. It's paid in full. And again, you may know that in your head, that because of the work of Jesus, you're fully innocent. But if, again, you're like me, you don't always feel that way. So how do we get from knowing it cognitively to really allowing it to sink into our heart? That's what I think John gives us in this last section as we look at it back in verse 31. Let's continue. John says, since it was the day of preparation, 
And so the bodies would not remain on the cross for the Sabbath, the Sabbath of the high day. So the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and might be carried away. If you're not familiar with that, um, they, they wanted to get these criminals off the cross so they could celebrate Passover, and it was unclean. And so what would happen in crucifixion is a, a lot of times you would die because you couldn't breathe anymore. And so you're hanging on the cross, tortured and bare and naked, but there was a little stoop for you to put your feet on. And so you would press up and get some air, and then you would come back down. And so to quicken the process, you would break their legs so that they couldn't press up on the cross to get the air, and they would die faster. So that's what's happening in this scene. Verse 32, so the soldiers came by and broke the legs of the first and the other that had been crucified with him. But when the soldiers came to Jesus and saw he was already dead, they did not break his legs, which again fulfills another prophecy. Verse 34, but when one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it is born witness. This is John because he's there. He's looking at it specifically, saying, I was here. I was right here when it happened. He said his testimony is true. He knows that by telling the truth that you may also believe. For these things took place where the scripture might be fulfilled that not one of his bones would be broken. And again, the scripture says, they will look on whom they have pierced. Why does John use this language of blood and water? It's the only time we see it in this account. And if we remember back to the entire Bible, but specifically what John has been doing, I mean, I know this has been a long journey. We've been in the book of John, the Gospel of John, for um, almost two years now. And so you may have forgotten. I can't imagine that you've forgotten. You probably lock in everything in your mind when you come in here and you're like, oh, I remember that. But, But John specifically uses language throughout his Gospel when he talks about water and he talks about blood. Let me just remind you of a couple because, again, this is loaded language he's using. He's done all the work riding up to this point. So you as a reader go, oh, my goodness. That's what what he's talking about. He's been saying this the whole time. Now we can finally see it. You remember the first time Jesus shows up on the scene in the Gospel of John? He shows up to John the Baptist, and John the Baptist is baptizing people. Jesus walks up to him, and what does John say in verse 29 of chapter 1? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's his first words when he sees Jesus saying, this is going to be the sacrificial lamb that's going to pay for the guilt and the sin of the entire world. A couple of verses later, John the Baptist says that he baptizes with water, but Jesus will baptize with the Spirit. Jesus at the Festival of Booths and Booths in chapter 7, he gets up and he announces this. He says, anyone who thirsts, let him come to me and drink. For whoever believes in me, as the scripture said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. It says, now he said this about the Spirit whom those who believed in him received, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. You remember the conversation with Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Nicodemus comes to him at night and is asking him, how do I be born again? And Jesus says, truly I say to you, unless one is born of what? Water and Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, the Son of Man must be lifted up foreshadowing the cross, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. The first miracle, Jesus turns water into wine. There's all this loaded language in his gospel connecting what water and blood and the Spirit do together. And what I think is happening here is the spear gets shoved into the side of Jesus that's meant to prove his death, which it did, but in proving death, it actually confirms new life in the Spirit. 
that as the water flows out, now it begins to flow into us in the power of the Spirit. When Jesus breathes on his disciples, what does the Spirit have to do with us understanding and feeling fully loved? When the Spirit gets taught or talked about, a lot of the times the aspect of the Holy Spirit or the ministry of the Holy Spirit is usually emphasized a couple things. Um, strength to fight temptation, that you have the Holy Spirit now to give you the strength to fight against that temptation. That is very true. And also to empower you to do ministry. That you wouldn't do it in your own power. You wouldn't do it in your own flesh, but you would tap into the Spirit of God that lives in you to step out and to love people, to forgive people that you couldn't do in your own power. And both of those are massively important in the midst of the role of the Holy Spirit. Well, one aspect often gets overlooked when you think of the Holy Spirit. And when Paul is talking about the ministry of the Holy Spirit in Romans chapter 5, The first thing he says about the ministry of the Spirit in in Romans chapter 5, verse 5, he says this, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. That God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. The role of the Holy Spirit in that sense is to remind you that you are free to remind you and to connect you to the idea that God loves you exactly how you are in Jesus. We might know in our heads that we're declared innocent, but what the Spirit does is allow it to feel it in our hearts. If you've been a Christian at any length of time, again, you could say, yes, yes, I know I'm free. I know I've been forgiven. I know it's paid in full. But man, I don't feel that way. This is the role of the Spirit. He comes in to remind you, you're a daughter of the King. The King is paid in full. Your shame is gone. Whatever you did last week, it's gone. It's paid in full. Feel it. How do we experience that as Christians? This is massive for us to understand. Because again, imagine I'm talking and having a conversation with my kids, and my kids are in counseling, and they're coming back to me years, which they will all be in counseling, definitely, at some point. And they come back to me, and they go, Dad, I know you loved me cognitively. I I, I get that you loved me, but I never felt like you loved me. I never felt like you loved me. I love you, kids. Um, What would that do to our relationship? It would affect it pretty drastically, right? Like, we can know in our Christian minds, and especially in a Reformed church of knowing the Bible and things like that, like we're free and we're forgiven. But if we don't feel like we're free and forgiven because Jesus said it's finished, how is that going to affect how we live? And the Holy Spirit's role in the midst of this is to go, I want to pour out God's love to you so you know who you are. How do we engage that love? It's a matter of prayer. It's a matter of being vulnerable. It's a matter of being humble. As we come into the space and as we sing, would we break down those walls? And for some of us, that's a hard space for us to be because we've been vulnerable with people and then we've been hurt. And so because of those past experiences, we put up this wall and we say, I'm not going to let that happen again. But what the Holy Spirit does is he comes down and he breaks down that wall brick by brick. And he says, trust. The Father is good. He's good. He loves you. 
He displays his love for you on the cross. Bring your shame to him. Bring your guilt to him and know that you are fully loved. I love that John gives us that detail of the blood and the water here. I think he's making a direct connection to the spirit. I think it's important for us to realize that in the midst that once we were fully guilty because of our sin, if you've accepted Jesus, you are now fully innocent. And the Spirit is the one that helps you feel that. Some of us are continuing to live like the Santa Claus song. We can believe in God, but we really feel like it really comes down to our good or our bad behavior. And the gospel says no. Feel the truth of God loving you even in the midst of your behavior. That's the beauty of the gospel. And that's what we get to remember every single week as we celebrate communion, as we sing, as we pray, as we celebrate and have gratitude for what Jesus has done for us. Let's remember that goodness this morning. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace, your mercy, your forgiveness, your kindness. Father, we need to be reminded of it often because we continue to sin. We continue to make mistakes, and we need your spirit to come and remind us and wrap us up like a warm blanket on a cold night to say, I love you. It is finished. Your debt has been paid. Live in that love. Help us do it this morning, Lord, even as we respond, as we sing. I pray you would touch our hearts to be reminded that it's paid in full because of the sacrifice of your son. Pray in your name. Amen.